This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. This episode is brought to you by Built to Sell, the online course, which is an interactive video-based training program that teaches eight strategies for driving up the value of your company. The course is made up of these 32 videos along with templates and quizzes and worksheets. You can view training videos in your own time, connect with others, and compare notes with classmates in the discussion area of each module. To learn more, head on over to builttosell.com slash course. You know, as entrepreneurs, we grow up thinking about selling our product or service. And if you've been running your business for decades, you've been doing it for a long time. And so when it comes to selling your company, you may have the default or knee-jerk reaction to think about, okay, if I go and you know get acquired by XYZ company, I can sell more of my product. Or if Google buys us, they're going to be able to help sell more of our product. And in my experience, that's not why companies acquire other companies. Typically, it's not to help them sell more of your product. A business is going to buy your company because for whatever reason, they want to sell more of their product. And they think by buying you, they can sell more of their product. And that's exactly the story we're going to get into today from Hampus Jacobson. Hampus had a very successful mobile development company. He had built it from zero to about 20, 30 million in revenue when BlackBerry called. And BlackBerry made an incredible offer to buy the business. And in retrospect, it almost seemed like a deal that was too good to be true until you understand what was going on at BlackBerry at the time, which was that they were trying to get their new notebook product out in the marketplace. And they felt incredible pressure from Apple with the iPad to get something into the marketplace quickly and would have arguably spent almost anything to buy what Hampus had to sell. Here to tell you the rest of the story is Hampus Jacobson. Hampus, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks a lot. So Happy tell to us, be here. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about this company, The Astonishing Tribe. What a great name, first of all. Yeah, it was a weird name. It was actually, like we had a huge issue naming it, but I think that what we realized after a long while is a good name is something that you can say to somebody in a bar and they can type it on their phone flawlessly. And uh, that's why actually we kind of removed the, the Astonishing Tribe name for a lot of conversations and called it T-A-T. Because uh, we were kind of like the Estonian tribe and whatever. So like after a while, like T-A-T, that was like bar friendly. Got it. So <laughs> give me the rest of the elevator pitch. What did you guys do? Oh, that's actually, unfortunately, a really long elevator pitch. We were a kind of weird company. We were the insides of the mobile industry. What happened, like if you remember your phone back in 2000, it was a text-based phone which had like a processor of a microwave oven so a really cheap one and then suddenly that clashed with kind of the graphic vivid world where we see today you know like your iphone the problem was that back in the day the processor and memory was not capable of actually drawing even color to the screen and me and my five co-founders had actually spent like all of our childhood doing that on different kind of weird reasons so we were just called one day we had like this little hobby project we were doing like an arts project pretty much and uh, we were just called by, by Sony Ericsson at the time. And they were saying, like, we have a huge issue about this. Can you help us out? And honestly, we started by saying, uh, we don't think mobile phones are going to fly. This was like in 2002. We were like, this is never going to happen. You know, mobile it's, phones are going to be It's boring. like Bill Gates saying, you know, like 128 megs or whatever he said. Exactly. It <laughs> wouldn't be enough for anybody. Like, ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Ridiculous. Exactly. We were like, ah, I'm not sure if this is going to be a great idea. But then, like, on the other side of the table, the guy from Sony Ericsson was like, please, 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 please. We're like, okay, sure. Let's go ahead and help them. 
And then we just found that we had just this amazing aptitude for that. It was like we were the best team. And, and, and literally, the funny thing is like after two or three years in it, we realized we were actually like the best team on the planet doing it. So we ended up doing, you know, all of Samsung phones had our stuff, all of Nokia phones, all of Motorola phones, all of Sony Ericsson's phones. And then one day Google called and said like, hey, we're building a mobile OS. We can't really talk about it. Can you help us design it from ground up? And we were like, whoa. So we're actually like, you know, we, we, we just, it was totally, we, it, our business plan was very simple. We want to have fun. We want to learn. And like, we want to be great at what we do. That was our business plan. And then, you know, we just stumbled into this thing. It sounds very hippy dippy. I mean, were you <laughs> yeah. really that casual about it? I mean, at the, at, at the start, you know, the thing is like, I was 21 when I started. I started like uh, as one, as a project, which was like, I want to hang out with my five friends. It would be really fun to do this. And if it fails, let's go and get hired somewhere. And then what, like the first year we were doing a lot of different things. And then the second year, the Sony Eric's guys calls it up and we still didn't really think it was going to fly. Uh, we helped them out. And then we were in the midst of helping them out. We realized like, hey, we should probably hire one of our good old friends to help us out with this because we need to deliver a couple of things here that we don't want to do. So we hired a friend, we hired two friends, we hired three friends, we hired four friends. And then suddenly we were 12 people. And, you know, one of them had a kid and, you know, we're looking at, you know, pensions and everything. We're like, hey, okay, we need to formalize this a bit. And then we suddenly just started doubling crew every year. We were like, and, and a lot of business development was done out of opportunity or boredom. Uh, like our second big customer is really because we started to really hate having long conversations with Sony Ericsson. And we're like, we have to find somebody else who's interesting. And then a friend of ours or like a colleague of ours had worked with Samsung. So we asked for an intro and he introduced to Samsung and then we were in front of them. And, you know, they, they, they like op open arms. They were like, whoa, this is amazing. And then we started working with them. And then a friend of ours worked with Motorola and we started working with them. And so, it was really, so the really model weird. was custom software development. I mean, you were trying to, not at all custom, actually. It was, no, it was actually product. So the weird thing is that, but it was very, it was, the thing is, when you're selling to companies, I, I usually have this like rule of thumb. When you're selling to companies who have more lawyers than you have employees, it will be a custom solution. Like, do not think that you can sell them a product. Um, it's just like my rule of thumb, uh, because they're going to ask for so many special things. But it, what it was, it was like, we were, we were striving to be a technology company. But I would say what we did is that when we delivered the product, we delivered part of it in what's called binary code. So it was not actually readable by the customer. And then on top of that, we did uh, like custom work for them to integrate it and develop and stuff for them. Uh, but some customers actually worked just by using our manuals. Uh, but most of our customers had uh, like a dedicated crew of like five people that worked solely with them. So someone like like the Android, like Google, like Sony would have a team of, of, of designers and engineers that you would have exactly. um, given them to work with. How quickly did this company grow? You started in 2001 and you were acquired in 2010. Yeah, we started like November 2001 and it was like a – it was a – it was completely a – it wasn't really a company the first half year. Like the first half year we were just playing around and goofing around doing things. And then, like, end 2002, we were six people, and we started getting this project from Sony. And then we doubled people. We were, like, from 6 to 12, then 12 to 25, then 25 to 50, then 50 to 100, and then 100 to 120-ish. And then from 120 to 150. And the thing is, I think when you're seeing when you're growing a company, uh, it's like there are a couple of different phases. But one thing you definitely see is the number of people you are. It's like um, when you move from 40 people, you stop, you, you know everybody's name, um, or at least ought to, 
but you don't really remember where they live or their partner or if they have kids or anymore. And when you're when you cross like a hundred, you you start to need like min management and structures and like reporting and KPIs. And when you cross 150, it, it, you need like business units and thinking about that. So that that was really like the very different phases in the company. So you did all this in the space of nine years because you went from 2001 to 2010. I understand mm-hmm. at 2010 you, you were up to about 25 million in revenue, 180 employees. Is that right? Yeah. What astonishing growth. Five co-founders. What was the capital structure like? I mean, did you all each own an equal portion? Did you did you have venture capital involved? What, what was that like? Yeah, you know, we were six co-founders. And the weird thing is that we actually, like in 2000 and, uh, 2007, like when the iPhone hit the market, uh, and we had been working with Android, we were really realizing what's going to happen. And then we realized like, we had this big vision that we wanted to build a phone of our own. We were like, this, this, we have an amazing idea. We could really work with stuff like Android and then build stuff on top of it and kind of, you know, we didn't understand the capital need of building a phone because that's what our customers did. So we had never seen that part. We knew the, the craft needed, but not like the money needed. So we were saying like, oh, let's do, let's, you know, get money. Uh, let's go out and on the market and, and get an investor. What we didn't understand is like the thing we worked with was so unsexy. So we actually went around, like I was in London, I was in San Francisco, I was in uh, like in Stockholm, here in Sweden. I was in a lot of different places. And, and we didn't, nobody really were interested because we had this really weird thing. We were asking, like we were saying, we want $10 million. We want them to actually buy used shares of us founders. Because like all of our capital is, is tied to this company. So we want some kind of, you know... Um, some kind of way of being able to think long term and not being as panicky about this as possible. And then we do another 10 on top of this to actually, you know, build the stuff we want to do. You lost no- me you, you lost me there, Habis. So, so you were saying you wanted $10 million, uh, to so, buy our to, so that the founders could put some money in their pockets and sort of yeah. walk, you know, ha- have that sort of piece squared away and then another $10 min- million of growth capital. Exactly. And what happened is that everybody we met said, like, the, the latter 10, the growth capital, I'm happy to give you that. I'm happy to give you 20, but I'm not going to put money in your pockets. Like, the, that's a big no-no. And uh, we went around, different, met a lot of VCs. They were saying the same thing one by one. And we were just trying to explain to them, understand that these guys are, like, 25-ish, you know, whatever, 26, 27. And, I mean, if, if something is wrong here, it's their whole life. So they, they can't work. They're, like, everybody's thinking super short-term about everything. And nobody got that. And then suddenly, one day, actually, our landlord uh, like came in and was like, hey, I understand you're moving, you're growing so fast. And we're like, yep, too bad, like, that's, that's life. And he's like I, like, I would love to invest. And we were just like smiling and like, that's really cute. Um, yeah, well, yeah, if you're super interested in investing, then we can send you a prospect, you know? And we thought, like, you know, he's going to go away. And he's like, yeah, actually, send me that prospect. And I, I really want to get rid of him. So I just took the prospect. I had one printed. I gave it to him, like, here, here's one. <laughs> And he's like, you know, we're looking to, you know, it's like $20 million. And he's like, oh, that's totally cool. What's the valuation? And I was like, oh, this old man. And he was a really old man. I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do with this guy? And I told him the valuation. Like, yeah, we're looking to do like $50 million or more, blah, 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 blah. I was like, oh, that, that sounds totally doable. And I was like, okay, go away. And he went away. And then he came back like two days afterwards. He knocked on the door again. And he came back. And I was like, okay, I got to ask you, like, do you have any of this capital? And I was like, yeah, I'm actually the biggest owner in Sweden of the nuclear plants. Like, I own most of the nuclear plants in Sweden. <laughs> oh, my God. This is our landlord. So he ended up being an investor. So he bought used shares from us. So we, the founders, owned 60% of the companies at the exit, uh, or like 58, and he owned the rest. Got it. So, so he bought roughly 40% of the company for $20 bucks. Is that right? 
Yeah, it ended up being a bit more because he, and he yeah, a bit more. But he did a very good exit. B- ballpark, uh, I'm, I'm saying. Exactly, ballpark. So, you, so you as founders had sort of two exits, one in 2007 where you were you were able to put, you know, some, some serious money in your pockets personally. Yeah. Uh, because as I understand it, you, the your landlord was okay with the, you know. The deal. The deal, yeah. half to, to the owners and half to growth capital. Yeah, it, it ended up actually for us, like at the end of the day, like and end of 2010, when we're like both our landlord had bought shares and um, and BlackBerry had bought our shares, of course, we ended up with roughly 10 million. Um, so that was kind of where it ended up. And I think that um, it would have been very difficult to make that better. I mean, if we wouldn't have had that investor, we would have a lot of issues uh, along the way. When you say you ended up with 10 million, are you referring to each, each of the founders? founders? Got yeah, it. we have equal shares. Got it, got it, got it. And so ultimately, the company was acquired in 2010. I think the number's public. Uh, yeah, I think it is like, I, I think the thing is, it's not public, public, but it's been everywhere. Um, back in the day, it was 150 million. Yeah, I was going to say, I can say it because I've seen it in, in third party uh, yeah, media listings, if you don't say it. Okay. So, so yeah, so it looks like it was acquired for around $150 million in 2010. So let's turn our attention to that exit. Uh, so you've got a minority shareholder in your landlord leading up to the exit. I mean, what, what triggered you to want to actually have the full exit in 2010? It was a couple of different things. It was The thing is, I really believe in a, a theory of what I would call stall points. Uh, I, uh, I think that as a company, as long as you're growing nicely, you should just focus on keeping on growing. Uh, so like, don't bother. But when you see that you start a stall, then it's the time when you should be thinking, should I acquire or should I be acquired? Like, am I lacking technology to drive this faster? Am I lacking market to drive this faster? And then, and then sometimes you can see that, okay, if we were... If we had that company in our pocket, then we would get that market. Then you would acquire them. Or if you would joint venture with that company, we would be able to grow in faster. And so that was part of it. Like we were stalling. We were growing slower and slower. Like we, we'd been used to like 100% growth. And then suddenly that paint off like 50 and then, you know, 30 and then 20. And uh, 20% growth at that time was, I mean, it was still okay. But we were really feeling that we were not growing as fast. Uh, so that was one. But it was a large, it was a, a couple of different things. So one, we were stalling. We're starting to stall. The second thing is like the six founders, there were six of us. I was the only one who was the part of the board and uh, part of the management team. Uh, the rest had kind of different kind of ways, moved to different operational roles. And at strategy meetings, they were pretty passive. And most of them were kind of saying, I, you know, I'm, I'm starting to think about other things in life. And, you know, this feels like, you know, is it okay if I actually would take another job if I'm interested and so on and so forth. So, like you could see that the six founders were getting, and that's not a big thing. You know, we're six founders. One of the founders could easily leave, but that would definitely be a risk, of course, culturally. What happens? Do, what do the employees think? And then the third thing was that the mobile market was really on fire. Uh, on fire as in a bad thing, I mean. It was like in the day, you know, Motorola was almost like everything was turning in the, in the bad direction for them. Uh, they were later being acquired. Uh, Nokia wrote their famous kind of we're in the burning platform email. They were later acquired by by Microsoft. Like one by one of the mobile manufacturers were panicky. So the whole market was in turmoil. So we had to really figure out a new strategy. And then on top of that, um, we were 158 or 160 people approximately. 
uh, like growing into that number at least. I think we've signed that number, please. And what happened was that we had to look at our management team and realize that we will need to do kind of an IPO or something uh, to be able to continue growing this. And to be able to do that, we need to change part of our management team. So like we had a, like a handful of issues, you know, like founders are getting tired. We need to change part of the management team. Um, uh, are, we're stalling and the market is on fire. So did you uh, take the market, did you take the company to market? Did you hire a corporate, you know, finance yes, M&A firm? Tell, tell us about that yeah. process. Yeah, we hired an M&A, uh, not an M&A firm actually. We actually hired a firm to take us, uh, to do an IPO. Um, so we started doing the IPO on, on the Swedish NASDAQ. So Sweden has OMX NASDAQ. It's the Stockholm Exchange is part of NASDAQ. So we started that process. And what actually was really funny is that we were planning to go public in, in the spring of 20, 2010. And uh, we set together a board and we had like everything was fine. But then like uh, the firm taking us to the market had a complaint about one of the board members because he had bankrupted a company and that's not allowed uh, if on the, to be a board member if you're in a Swedish company. Um, so we were saying like, oh, so we need to find another board member. Yes, and that board member has to be had to be part of a public company previously. So we were like, oh my God. And this was like in May. And everybody was telling us, if June comes, don't IPO. That's going to be really bad for your evaluation. And we figured out we're not going to be able to IPO. So we're just like, okay, stall this. Bring it up in like September, October. So we were starting to bring that up again in September. And then 10th of October, uh, BlackBerry was calling us. Like we were in the midst of, you know, interviewing board members and stuff. And BlackBerry was calling us out of absolutely nowhere. We had no relationships with BlackBerry whatsoever. Uh, like absolutely none. We had never talked to anyone at BlackBerry. So they called us from nowhere. And it was really weird. I was jogging on the beach. I was really heavy on counting my cadence back in the day. Uh, you know, I was a barefoot jogger. I was really into that. And they called me up. And I was like, oh my God, now somebody's calling. And you know, like Ontario, I saw my phone. It's like, what's this? So I picked up the phone, standing on the beach. And there's like this guy saying like, hey, I'm calling from BlackBerry. And my name is Chris Wormald. And I'm an M&A here. And, and I'm a very, very curious person. So I was like, oh, interesting. Tell me about it. Like, I thought that this is never going to happen. You know, nobody's going to acquire us. We're a weird company. Uh, you know, nobody really, when we talked to the VCs, they never really understood what we did because we were inside of the mobile industry. And also, it was hard to acquire us for a mobile vendor because all of their competitors were going to be, they were our customers. Like, you know, if BlackBerry would acquire us, what were they going to do with all the agreements from Motorola, from, from Nokia, from Samsung, from Sony Ericsson? And like, it was going to be a weird deal. So I was like, yeah, let's talk. And he's saying, like, we really want to acquire DAT. And I said, well, I got to explain to you that it's kind of complicated. It's like, it's a product, blah, blah, blah. And I explained it. And he was like, I know. I, we, we, we looked at you for now for, for three weeks. We're super interested. Can you have a meeting with our CTO on Friday? And this was Tuesday. And I was like, of course. Of course. I mean, I'm, I'm over the phone. I was like, yeah, over the phone. Sure. So Wednesday morning, I came into the office. And I was thinking, like, how do we do this now? And if, like, if I tell the team, like, you know, Blackbird's looking to acquire us. I mean, everything's going to be, you know, head over feet. Like all of the agreements we're talking about to the customers are going to be, you know, if not canceled, then at least postponed and stuff. So I was like, let's not bring this up. Let's not make a big deal of this. I wasn't the CEO at the time. So I was like, okay, let's not bring it up to the CEO. Let's not bring it up to the board. I called uh, my head of the board and I was saying like, this is my strategy. And he was like, cool, I like the strategy. Let's handle it as a business relationship right now. So then I went into the team that did sales to new customers. And I told them, okay, so BlackBerry called me last night. They want to look at a demo of our latest stuff. They're super interested. Can you build a demo for us for Friday? Because we're going to talk to them on Friday at 2. And they were like, sure. What do you want to build? And I said, like, you go ahead. I don't know. Like, you're, you're the best guys at these. So the, they, they, the team built kind of a pitch 
you know, like if BlackBerry was going to license our stuff and use our resources, what would they be able to get? You know, don't care about the business part because that's what I, I, I or sales handle. So they build a really nice pitch. So in the meeting on, on, on Friday, I went in, like, you know, started the WebEx, showed them the stuff, and it was so silent. Like the most, one of the most silence calls I've ever had. And I think the thing is that what happened was real different because usually when you do M&A, you're really used to people starting with, you know, cap table and uh, those kind of very sort of, you know, logistical stuff in a deal. We started as if we engaged a customer. We started, you know, like, this is what we can do for you. You started singing, dancing. And uh, the M&A guys, were, they were not used to that. And they were, they were loving it. They were just sitting there like, wow, they're, you know, they're just telling us everything we need to know. So we're sitting there taking notes and being super excited. And they were saying, this is, and then they ended the call saying, this is extremely interesting. Can you come to Waterloo in Canada on, on Monday to meet our founder and CEO, Mike Lazaridis? And we said, like, sure. Um, that sounds, again, I'm super curious. I was like, sure. But now it feels like, you know, it feels like it's getting real. Um, so I was like, yeah, um, we might need to get to Mac to before that. And then I called my head of the board. and I was like, so they really liked it and they want to go on. Should we talk to the CEO? Like, what do you want to do? And he said, like, what do you think the chances are of this actually turning into an ideal? And I said, like, honestly, I think it's like 10%, like maybe at most 15. I don't think, I mean, I think they're going to meet us. I think they're going to understand that we're not a good match. And they're going to say, like, cool, and maybe let's do a license deal. So I said, so he said, like, yeah, that sounds very, and I explained why. He said, okay, cool. So don't bring it up with the CEO. Uh, but we, we need a corporate finance firm. And you can't go there alone. I was like, cool. So let me just pause at this point. Have yep. some, like, so you're saying don't? You keep saying you're not including the CEO of of TNT. Really weird. And and in part of this, and, and so, but but weren't you kind of going around as back going to a board member? Um, y- yes and no. The thing, yes. So I mean, our CEO, she was a really really amazing CEO. I really liked her in a lot of ways. And the thing is, the weird situation we had was that I ran business development, so I reported to her. And then the thing is, uh, she reported to me because I was part of the board. And then so the other, she she wasn't one of the six co-founders. No, 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 no. She was hired. She was a hired gun. Uh, and the reason was really because we realized back in like 2007, we just realized that we were growing too fast for kind of having a, you know, a, we needed a grown-up in the room, frankly. And I think that if I were doing it again, um, I would have thought about hiring a COO instead of a CEO. Uh, but you know, like. I think it was great. I was super happy not to be the CEO. And, and, and one other, my other co-founder who kind of did the same things as I did, he was also super happy not to be the CEO. There were so many logistical parts of being a CEO that it was great not being one. Got it. So and take it, us back to the story. You've got the meeting with Mike on Monday. Exactly. And so the, so the, the weird thing is this. So like we're now on Friday. And I realized like, so now our head of the board tells me like we should look at a corporate finance firm. And we had tried acquiring a company actually a year earlier. Uh, and I really like that firm. Because, I mean, they had a firm, so they were on the other side of the table. So I called them up. I was like, you know, we never acquired that company, but I really liked you guys. And, you know, we got this offer. We'd like to hire you. And can you join us to, to like, fly with us to Toronto and meet them in Waterloo? And they said, like, of course. So the first thing you need to do is that you need to ask them about the price. And we were saying, well, no, no, let's just fly there. And then the corp finance guy said, like, no, listen to me. I'm your advisor now because you just signed the paper with me. I'll call them up and talk to them about the price. And I was like, yeah, sure. I go ahead. I mean, what can we lose? It's never going to happen anyway. So like, called him up. And he said, like, what's next year's turnover? And I told him, this is like what we expect. Next. And of course, you know, I'm a founder. I sugared a bit. 
Like, you know, it's like, you know, I don't want to sound, I, I was bullish, of course. He's like, cool. Thanks what, did, a lot. what did you tell him you were expecting in terms of turnover next year? Um, let's see, what's that? So um, it was 150 divided by four. What's that? 30, no, 25. Um, no, it's like it's between like $28 million or something uh, around that. In rough. terms of I, annual turnover. Exactly. So like I said, like next year, you know, 2010 is going to be around 26 or $27 million or something. I said, I said a, a, a number to him. And then he said, like, cool, that's great. And I think that it was going to be, I mean, honestly, I think it was going to be like 20 maybe. At probably not more than 20. Because we were not growing at the pace we wanted. Um, so he called up BlackBerry. And then he got me back on the phone. He was like, okay, cool. I got a verbal offer from them. And I was like, now you got to tell me what's the verbal offer. And he said, uh, so they're saying they're offering you three to four times next year revenue. And I told them what that is. And I was like, three to four times next year's revenue? That's just crazy. He's like, well, that's that's what they said, so that's good, right? And I was like, yeah, that's that's definitely not going to be a problem. Um, and then uh, we flew there, and actually we did even crazier. We actually called in sick, um, honestly, because we thought it was going to be so improbable. This is actually going to fly. We were just thinking, like, if we actually, you know, tell the company that this is going to happen, everything is going to go the weird way. And right now, I would never do the same thing. I think that was that was kind of an irresponsible thing. I wish we would have talked to the CEO over the weekend and brought her up to speed about it. But like the head of the board was very much saying, because we were in a very, very big negotiation with a big Chinese telco, and she was constantly flying there. And the head of the board was really telling me, if you bring up that we're maybe going to be acquired, she's going to postpone a lot of those discussions because she doesn't want to have half an agreement signed with them. And I was like, I truly agree with you, but you know, like we're going behind her back. And he was like, yes, but, you know, we're going to go around and her back for one day. And I was like, yeah. And then it turned, you know, two days. And I was like, okay, now I feel really uncomfortable about it. We flew there, uh, and it was, we came to Waterloo, uh, met with a couple of the different, like the head of engineering, the head of design, had a really good lunch, uh, like talking to them. And the food too, but like a very good discussion. Then went into uh, like HQ, Blackberry, came in. And this huge meeting room with all of the management management team, which was very rare. I mean, I did M&A for them later, so it was a very strange situation. Uh, we came in, and Mike, who was an extremely brilliant person. I Mike that, being the co-founder of uh, Exactly. He was one of the two Blackberry. co-founders, exactly, and like co-CEO of BlackBerry. And Mike was the tech guy of the two co-founders. And most, very few people understand what a person Mike was. You know, Steve Jobs are famous for being brilliant and a lot of those people, but Mike Lesbury is not that famous, especially not outside Canada. But Mike was, I mean, brilliant is an understatement. Like, I, I, there are few people I've been around that I've been, like, in awe of their brilliance in, in such as a multifaceted way. So he started by saying, like, okay, so tell me about TAT. And we started telling about TAT. And then, like, you know, Two minutes into the uh, into the product presentation, he interrupted us. He was like, "So this is built on C uh, programming language." It was like, "Yes, yeah, but we think that Flash is going to be much better, which was Adobe's product, which was our only competitor in the market." We were like, "No, you don't understand. The problem with Flash," and he was like, "Just you know, standing there in front of us, like arms crossed, and looked just so, you know." almost patronizing and you know me and one of my co-founders who was flying there one of my tech co-founders we went completely honestly completely bananas like i thought like okay we flew all the way here and they're not even interested so i was like okay let's use these 
three, four remaining hours till the airplane leaves to just tell them what they're going to go wrong with Flash. So we were just speaking openly from our heart, like how bad of an idea it was to trust Adobe Flash to actually be the head of, of the core of their platform. And, you know, we went on and, and Mike, um, he was super brilliant. He was like, you know, every single thing we said, he caught it and like turned it around and explained why that would work. And like, he was so smart. We were just standing there fighting and fighting. And we were used to these fights because it happened every single one of our customers, of course. And then, you know, after, you know, 15 minutes of just constant arguing about this technology choice, he was like, thanks. That was a great discussion. We, you know, we had like 10 slides left of the presentation or something. And we hadn't even got half through the product. He was like, can you be in my room now? Just talk to me alone. We were like, yeah, whatever. Like, you can do whatever. We were like, yeah, whatever. Okay. He was a great guy, but apparently he didn't want to buy it. So I was like, yeah, sure. Let's go to your room. So he went to his room. And then he sat down at his desk, took a sip of water and looked up and said, like, thanks a lot, guys. You know, a lot of my management team still wants to use Adobe Flash. And I really need to get them to understand how superior a technology like yours would be. We just looked at him as like, was that all theater? I was like, yeah, yeah, totally. Like, thanks a lot. You just explained everything to them. So I would love you to wear Blackberry badges in six weeks. And I was almost stuttering, like, what? You, you want to, yes, yes, I want to acquire you. So like, we have six weeks now and I want to get started. Um, what do we need to do? We think you're like infringing patents because why on earth aren't you otherwise acquired? And we were like, well, we haven't tried to be sold. No, yeah, we think you're having patent infringement. We're going to look into that. But if you don't, how about we offer you uh, four times next year's revenue, close this deal and move on? We we're like, sure, that's, that's, that's great. It was like, good, I'll give you a, a handshake. So we shook hands, we came back to the meeting room and there was our corporate finance guys sitting among, you know, the head of M&A and head of tech and everything, everybody looking really weird, you know, just what happened. So Mike just turned around to the head of M&A, Chris Wormel, the guy who called me, it's like, Chris, in six weeks, I would love these guys to wear Blackberry badges. Um, can we get started with that pronto? And he was like, of course, of course, Mike. Great, now I need to go to a meeting. And he just left. And, you know, the whole meeting just dismantled and the head of M&A and us was left there. And our corporate finance company was like straightening his tie, trying to say something professional. And then they were just like, you know, shoo, shoo. And we left her the airplane. It was like, what, what just happened? And then the a guy told us like on the way to the airplane, he said, you know, sometimes the founders have these great ideas, but the way to measure if a deal is going to go through is the velocity of the deal. Like he's now saying six weeks, that sounds great, but we've never ever seen a deal of this size going through six weeks. That is a bad omen, you know, because he's got an unrealistic timeline. And that's, that's a bad sign because the velocity of the deal tells you the probability of the deal. We were like, okay, thanks a lot for the help. So yeah, we got on our plane, we landed. What did they mean by that? I mean, meaning the, the faster the deal is, is intended to go through, the, the less likely it is to happen? No, the faster the deal actually pays, you know, the pace of everything, yeah. like the mechanics in the deal, the faster that happens, the more probable it's that it's actually going to happen. Every time that somebody goes silent on the line, there's a huge risk that something actually went wrong. But Las Reedus was asking for six weeks. Wouldn't that have intimated that to you that, 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 that he wanted it to happen very badly? That's exactly how I felt. But the M&A guy was really telling us that, you know, it, it, the problem is that if he would have said 10 weeks, that would have sent a clear, good, realistic signal, signal that we wanted to do this quickly. But six weeks, that's kind of saying we're going to break a world record. And that means that what I think it's going to mean is that when the M&A team actually start working on this, uh, they're going to be out of sync with the tech guys. They're going to be out of sync with product guys. 
Mike is going to get furious. They're going to start discussing what they actually want. And they're going to realize that they're, they're not in sync about things. And they're going to go on, you know, a three-month dis, three discussion about strategy. And they're not going to get back to you. So we're like, okay, so like I interpret it as a good thing, but apparently it could be a bad thing that they're kind of stressing it through. Because I mean, stressing it through could be not thought through. Sure. But so how did this all end up? Like, what, yeah, so, take, so fast forward to, towards the, the actual deal. How did this all get, get done? The thing is, the micro fast forward of this is actually we landed on Copenhagen Airport, which is the closest airport where I, which I'm in. And the m and guys were landing in, in uh, London because they were uh, London guys. And they landed an hour before us. So when I got off the plane and brought up my phone and, you know, turned off airplane mode, I got an email from him saying, we have a term sheet. And then, like, in that email, he said, like, so they're on pace. Like, I've never received a term sheet the same day. So they're actually looking to do this in six weeks. So that's when I realized this is, they're actually intending. What happened then is that one week, it was emails, discussions, negotiating the term sheet. Week after, it was a pause. Like, they were obviously regrouping, thinking things through. Then they flew there week three. And there were like a huge team here in Sweden, in Malmo, in, uh, with us. Uh, I think there were like eight people. And they were really thin. And, and the story was that, of course, our, you know, our CEO knew, our CTO knew, our CFO knew, the management team knew, the board knew. But still, the employees didn't know. Um, so what we were doing this as was that BlackBerry wants to license our technology. And they were very serious because they wanted for this product. And we can point at a product. So they wanted to really quickly go through, you know, like set up a project and do everything. So we were actually like, you know, rubber hit the road. The design team started working with them. The tech team started working with them. The licensing guy started working with them. Like everybody just locked into position, just as if they were a customer. And then, you know, the guys who flew here, they sat down and started saying, like, we need to know this and this and the risks and that and blah, 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 and ownership. And, you know, everybody just locked in position just as if it was any big client. So they got an amazing due diligence because it was not like the classical, you know, room with all the paperwork. No, it was a, like a 10-people team who were all trained to, to answer these questions because that's what we did for every customer. You know, when, when Nokia came in, they were saying, like, we're going to license this. We need to know who, who owns the shares of this company because we need to know the control rights. You know, chick locked in a position. People started explaining. You know, everybody's just started as usual. So they were there for one week and then they flew back. And then they landed two weeks later, and then we had actually the like the final um, like like the negotiations, and it was a complex deal, because remembering that we had those license agreements with our competitors, they did not want those license agreements because that was like that was really uh, a bad idea for them to have. Uh, BlackBerry did not want to have a license agreement with Nokia because they wanted and didn't want to open up the the can of worms with that relationship could give. So they were doing. Um, uh, they were doing a very special kind of deal where they started a subsidiary. We pushed down all the technology and they bought that subsidiary. Um, so they kind of left a mother company which is completely empty except those agreements. Uh, it's a pretty common structure to do, but it's still kind of complicated because all the employees need to reassign to a new company. All the tech need to be reassigned. And then uh, you need to have a license agreement back to the mother company because that mother company needs to honor all their old license agreements. But now they don't, the mother company doesn't own the technology. It only has the license right to continue to offer it. Um, and then BlackBerry went, and, go and, went that and bought that subsidiary. And then we were sitting for four days and nights straight. I went home every night at like uh, between 12 and 2. I went home and slept. But our lawyers, our American lawyer and our Swedish lawyers 
because we had an American licensed lawyer and we had a Swedish uh, like uh, legal team and our corporate finance guys, they were pretty much sitting there straight uh, and our head of the board. They were just sitting there negotiating constantly. And, um, and then the final day, we were sending out an email to all the employees saying, we will gather everybody at 10 and, and like talk about something. And, you know, pretty much you rumor, rumors were around. People got that that was something happened. And at, we were supposed to sign the license agreement. Or sorry, the license agreement and, you know, share purchase agreements and everything. We were supposed to sign that at 9.30, like 30 minutes before. Sign that and then go over to the, to the company. And then at 9.30, uh, like they said, we actually want to change clause, you know, 14.6.2, whatever. And our lawyers were just furious. Like, you can't do this. You, we have to sign this in eight minutes. We have to print these and everything. And Black were just sitting there, like, completely, you know, stone-faced. Like, no, we're not going to sign this. So then head of the board and myself and, and the CEO and the head lawyer and the licensed lawyer, we all went into the room and said, like, you know, is this for real? Or is this just, you know, are they pushing it? And then we just decided, let's send out an email to all the employees that we move the meeting to 11. So we send that, that email and, you know, CC the BlackBerry guys because, you know, the BlackBerry guys were supposed to quote unquote present on that meeting something. And when they saw that email and we went out of that room, we were back into negotiation. They realized that we were not going to just fold. So we're negotiating for another hour and then we signed the agreement. And then we went and presented for the employees and saying like, hey, this is BlackBerry, they want to acquire. What was the one issue that was the, the last minute deal? Warranties and indemnities, it always is. It's like, I mean, the price was really non-issue. The price was one of those trophy things that, you know, nobody, at the end, it was one of those things where like, we didn't even discuss it till the last day. And when we discussed it, it was almost like, you know, it was like a toy. We were all kind of understanding that where we were at Ballpark Work. And they ended actually up saying, uh, like, um, they actually finally ended up saying more, slightly more than what we agreed, four times next year revenue. But what they did is that they didn't give us all that money. Because our CEO, when we hired her, we really want to give her options. But she was super, super so saying, like, I do not want any options. I don't want any of that. We don't, we don't really know why. But she was saying, like, adamantly, I do not want any shares. I don't want any options yet. So we're like, okay, what, whatever, go ahead. So she didn't have any shares. And the BlackBerry guys were saying, that is just so unfair that she doesn't have shares. So we want to give her cash. So we're going to take money out of your pocket and give to her. So the deal is going to look like this. You're going to get X and then she's going to get this amount. And the thing is, it ended up being a bigger sum anyway. So we were like, yeah, whatever. It's oh, totally okay. But then the last minutes was all like, you know, what was going to happen if, what was going to happen if, like, what if the technology isn't as good as it is? What if, if not all the employees are going to sign on the new company? Because this is also a really weird mechanic that most people don't know about acquiring companies is there's usually a signing date and then there's a closing date. And in between those is when you do a lot of the, you know, final due diligence. You really figure out what's going on. You have a couple of clauses that need to go through. The scary thing is that we had is that we had a clause said 90% of the employees need to sign with a new company. Because if, if not 90% signs, then BlackBerry is not willing to go through this deal. The deal is not going to close. And the closing is when we would get the money. And the problem is that that was a, a, a six-week period. So the problem is the second we were signed, we were, uh, if, if we were not informing our clients, we we're going to breach our customers. We we're going to breach a contract with them saying we had to change our ownership. 
So we had to tell them we just changed ownership. But then six weeks later, we were having a new owner, which meant that you know if Nokia, Samsung, Sonics, and all of our customers, they were going to pull out, and then 85% of the employees were going to sign the agreement, then BlackBerry wouldn't acquire us. And now Nokia and Samsung and the guys don't want to work with us. What, what, did, what did the, the uh, companies like Sony and, and so forth not, you know, basically uh, canceling their agreements with you, what did that have to do with whether 90% of the employees stayed? Why no, are those no. two things? No, there were, there were two different things. Okay. So the, the, the one thing there was like BlackBerry didn't want to buy the new company or that didn't want to buy a company if they couldn't get at least 90% of the employees and that the, the technology didn't do any patent infringements. So there were like, there were two, I, I think there was one, one more, but that was a uh, walk in the park. But those two were like, you know, you can always happen to infringe patents without knowing it. So they were going to spend, spend those six weeks in figuring out that we didn't. And then they want 90% at least of the employees to sign the papers before they acquired it. But the problem was that the second we signed the first agreement, uh, the day of the announcement internally, the day of the announcement, the news is going to be out. You know, it's just going to be in the media and we would have to call all of our clients saying, we are changing ownership. Do you still want to have our license agreement? Because that was a clause of our license agreement that we had to inform them of a change of ownership. Um, so the risk we were at was like, what if, um, what if we now call our clients and tell them, we just changed owners, our new owners of BlackBerry, hope you're good with that. You, so you read it all over the news. And they were going to say, <laughs> no, we don't want to work with you because, you know, BlackBerry is now your owner. So BlackBerry is going to get all of our trade secrets. You know, if you work on a secret new phone, it's going to be shipped in 18 months. Your, your owner is our competitor. We don't want you to know that. So we're going to, like, we're going to, you know, freeze you out of the cold. We don't want to talk to you anymore. Um, and then what if that happened? And then six weeks later, or four weeks, I actually realized it was four weeks later. Four weeks later, then only 80% of the employees are going to sign for the new company because they didn't like BlackBerry as an employee, employer. Um, and then BlackBerry wouldn't close the deal with us. So then we would sit with the old company. Everything was fine, except no customers. No customers, yeah. And of course, we could call back Nokia and the guys and say, like, hey, they didn't go through. And I mean, they wouldn't have trusted us. They would like, yeah, you just try to sell it. So we don't want to work with you. So how did you overcome that? What did you do? Did you roll the dice and accept the reps and warranties or did you renegotiate yeah. them? Sweat blood, honestly. Like, I mean, we negotiated, there were a lot of warrant. The warranties we negotiated were personal warranties. Like, because there were warranties saying stuff like, you know, if this is not right, then the founders are the ones that need to warrant this. Um, because they, they argued, BlackBerry argued, you're the owners and you're also the key, some of the key people at this company you have total insight of everything. So, you know, if something's strange, you know that. And, you know, if we're going to find out, you're the ones, your head is going to be on the line. And for listeners, this is an important point. And regardless of you're doing a deal to sell your company for a million dollars or $150 million, you're going to have reps and warranties that you need to sign, which means that you are representing and warranting that, you know, that what you have said to the buyer is true. And usually they can come after you not only in your business, but also personally. So these do tend to come up as, 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 you know, deal points because, you know, you as the founder, you're trying to transfer risk from owning a company to the new owners. You're saying, hey, here's exactly. my company, you know, now, now all the, you know, the economic benefits, but also all the risks of owning that company are going to you, 
the new owners. And the last thing you as a founder want to do was is take on a bunch of more obligations and risks warranting and representing that, you know, they have the rights to, you know, come back to you if what you're saying is not truthful. So these deal points tend to come up a lot in the final minutes. And and and, and it sounds like that's exactly what had happened to you, Hampus. The, these deals were, these deal points were biggies. Yeah, and, and the problem is that, I mean, there are a couple of different things because, I mean, there are ups of warranties that kind of tell you, you know, you own the shares, which is like, yes, <laughs> I own the shares. It's okay, I know that. But then there are reps and warranties, which is like, you know, you have not infringed any patents. So then we were saying like, yeah, to the best of our knowledge, we would like to have it to the best of our knowledge clause. But the problem is, of course, with the to the best of your knowledge clause is like, how on earth can they prove that we didn't know? It's a very subjective thing, right? That's yeah. where you get into the subjectivity of law versus the and, you know, binary and, nature of coding. And, exactly. And we were really saying, you know, like, you, you know, you can like, if we had an infringement, like, of course, we would have some documentation about it, probably. Like, you can, you have all our email, you, you know, like, whatever, you're going to find it. And they were like, yeah, you, we can't have it to the best of your knowledge clause. And then we were saying, like, we can't sign on a clause, which is out of our control. Like, we can sign a clause that says, if it's going to rain tomorrow, the deal's not going to go through, because we can't control weather. And they were saying, like, do you think it's going to rain tomorrow? And we're like, you don't understand the point. Like, we can't control it. Even if I thought it was going to be the sunniest day, if I'm going to say that never, nothing's going to happen, if, that's, if it's going to rain, I can't sign on that. And we were just sitting there as a continuous argument. And then the other side, which is tricky, which is like, you know, if you own a company, the worst thing that can happen is usually the company goes bust. Uh, economically, that's a really awful thing. And the other thing is that you have to look all their employees in the eyes and said, like, I'm sorry, this, like, you have to look for another job, which is really, really, really horrendous thing to have to do. But the problem with when you're selling a company is that the, the, the downside is no longer you're going to lose everything you have. The downside is going to, we're going to get come after you. So the downside is a lot worse than if you don't sell the company. Um, so, and, and their argument was like, yeah, but the upside is a lot better too. And we were like, yeah, but we can't sign on stuff which is outside of our control. So how did you, in the case of do you own these patents or have you, have you had a patent infringement or have you infringed on a patent? How, how did you overcome this? You wanted it to be to the best of your knowledge. They said no. What was the final document? If I remember correctly now, I think we had like 15 reps and warranties, which were really like the ones we discussed. And some of them, but what, what we'd end up doing, which I think you always do, is that you're just sitting there. What I wonder what they, there must be a classical expression. If you know the guys, like the farmers that are kind of selling sheep and, and cows to each other. It was one of those, you know, you get a good one, we get a good one. We were just sitting there like, okay, like you can get, we know we own our shares. And they were saying that's not worth anything. Okay, you can get, uh, we own all our code. I'm like, okay, cool, that's cool. Okay, what do we get for that? And they were saying, you can get blah, blah, blah. And we're like, that's not worth anything. And we're just sitting there, like, negotiating as we were, you know, if we were, like, uh, you know, tweens trading cards with, with uh, hockey pictures, it was like, you can get this one. And we were sitting there trading. And after a while, we were sitting, like, I guess this is the best we can get. Like, we can't get better than this. And then what happened the last hour was that they said, give us that picture back. And we were like, no, 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 you can't get that clause back. Like, that's our clause now. Like, we... We are not going to guarantee that. And they were saying, like, it was cut cost back or we don't sign. And then that's when we just said, okay, call up the meeting, postpone it. And then they just like, okay, keep the picture. So ultimately your bluff saying delay the meeting for an hour was... It was actually not was, a bluff. We actually delayed the meeting an hour, but yes. But it was enough to get them to realize you were serious. I think, I think they realized that it was not, like, we were not going to be pushovers. We were, like, we were, we were not going to, we were not just going to fault. We were, we were going to sit there and continue negotiating. Help me understand something. You said you expected, you know, top line revenue, uh, you know, optimistically between 26 and 28 million. 
And Lazaridis offered four times top line revenue. So the math on that is roughly a hundred million, but you ultimately sold for 150 million. So where did you yeah, get so sorry. the- No, sorry. So it's my math that's wrong when I sort of con- convert currencies here. So, uh, no, so exactly. So what we told them, sorry. So what we told them, you have to just post edit the whole post podcast now. Every time I say 20 something, you have to say 30 something. So realizing now when I actually do the math, we told them the next year's revenue is going to be around uh, like $37 million. Got it. Okay. And which is where we're getting up to 100, exactly. to 150. Okay. And it's probably going to be 30. So, you know, we were definitely uh, sugarcoating that. And also because it was one of those ridiculous discussions, you know, uh, like if somebody just comes into your shop and says, like, how much goods are you going to sell next year? And you're going to like, why do you want to know? Because I want to know what the shop is worth next year. You're like, you know, there's nothing that, that you don't need to guarantee what you're just saying. So you can like, we're going to make a hundred billion zillions. They're like, oh, cool. Was the, was the 150 million, was that on an earnout? Was there a portion of that? Was that cash on closing? No, what was that? It was, it was actually cash on closing. So that was, that, we didn't expect that at all. We expected it to be uh, a deal where like part of it is going to be shares, part of it is going to be an earnout, and, and part of it is going to be cash. And, and they were just saying, this is a cash deal. And actually, we got a, like a, we got a bonus after 12 months if, um, I like 80% of all the employees stayed. We got another bonus. So I think that, I mean, there was usually what's called in MA, there was an escrow agreement. So there was an agreement with, withheld, I think, 20% of the money, if I remember correctly. So looking that we were not going to be sued the coming 12 months, looking that still a significant part of the employees were going to stay, and like none of the key employees were going to leave or something like that. There was a, like a list of demands, and none of those things happened. And again, so, es- escrow for listeners is going to be different typically than an earnout. An earnout is an objective yeah. in the future that you got to hit. If you if you hit it, you you make some extra money. An escrow is a portion of the agreed upon sale price, which is put into a trust account held by a lawyer. Uh, you know, and and it sits there for a period of time, six months, a year, um, ensuring that a certain set of events that you agree to don't happen. Uh, so that's how uh, how escrow differs from earnout. So you you neither you did not have an earnout in this deal. This, no, you yeah, know, no, no. in in retrospect, I mean, looking at this deal um, as an entrepreneur, you know, wearing your entrepreneur hat, you must have just died and gone to heaven. I mean, this is an incredible uh, you know, four times future revenue. Future revenue is sort of a bit of a back of the napkin optimistic guess. Um, why do you think they did? S- the deal. I mean, it's just, it sounds almost too good to be true. Yeah, the weird thing was this. It was really funny because uh, when we were acquired, I like the different six founders went to different positions within BlackBerry, and I became I became part of the M and A team. So the M and A team was like eight, ten people or something, really experienced, like old foxes from different kind of places, and then two ex entrepreneurs that had been acquired, me being one of them. And uh, the first time I was in in Canada, and like we went out for beers. I just asked him, like, okay, so, you know, there was 150 million deals, a deal, you know, would you acquire us for more? I just, like, you know, over a beer, like, I'm not going to change anything. And they were just saying, like, yeah, we would acquire us for anything, pretty much. And I was like, what? Yeah, the situation here was hell. I was like, you know, the, star, the stars of hell aligned in here. Like, what, what happened six weeks prior to this, and this is what most people don't understand when M&A deal happens. Like, the thing, if you're a good founder you should try to think about why are they calling me? Like, what just happened in the company? Like, what led up to this? Uh, and the thing is, like, just as if you were talking to a client, you know, like when a client comes and signs an agreement with you, 
you can always ask the client, you know, like what led you up to this decision? And like, what other vendors did you look at? And that, you can ask that on an M&A deal too. We didn't because we didn't have a clue. Um, but what they said was that what happened is that they were really, re they were building a new tablet. And the whole market in the world had decided that tablets was going to be important for enterprises. And, and boy, the whole, the whole world was wrong. That took another five years. But back in the day, everybody agreed that that's going to be super important. And, and BlackBerry had this strategy that they wanted to beat uh, Microsoft. They want to become the ultimate enterprise and productivity play because Apple was still not there. And, and none of the phone manufacturers were trusted by the enterprises, really. And you had this new, like, bring your own device market where people started bringing their own devices to work and the IT department had to sync them up. And everybody hated that. So everybody was looking at BlackBerry, all the BlackBerry's companies, customers was looking at BlackBerry and saying, like, we need a tablet where people can, you know, work off a tablet. But the problem was that BlackBerry had acquired four companies to help them build this new thing, this new super beast of a tablet. But the problem was that the user interface, the thing that we did, it just didn't work. So the guy that headed user interface design at BlackBerry was the guy who designed it OS X, the thing you have on your Mac, for Steve Jobs, an ex-Apple guy. So he was just saying, a couple of weeks before we, we were called, he went into that engineering and he's like, the platform doesn't work. Like the thing you're building for me, I cannot do the things I want to do. This is going to look like a 2005-year-old's phone in a big size. And you know, the, everybody's going to whoop our ass. We're going to look stupid. And the head of engineering said, so like, I don't know what to do. Like, we're doing everything we can. We're just like, we're maximizing this. And then the day after, the, the head of design went into his design manager, who's the guy who ran the design team, and said, like, we need more designers. I mean, this is going to be, we actually need to do more designs too. So then the head of design went into Mike and said, like, I need to have a meeting with you because we have an issue on the design front. And he's like, we need more designers. We need more engineers implementing design. And honestly, I believe that the engineering team is not up to speed when it comes to product. So he called, like Mike picked up the phone and called in the engineering manager. like, okay, what do you think about this? And the engineering manager said, yeah, I don't think we're there. I think we, if we postpone for six months, we're going to be there. And then Mike just like, you know, furiously roared, like, no, we're not going to postpone for six months. Like, I want this thing out. I want more designers. I want the best you can ever hire. And I want people who can implement designs. And then I want a better platform. And then he was like pausing for three seconds and he just picked up the phone and it's like, I want Chris Worm within my room. And then Chris, the head of MA, came into the room and was like, so this is my problem. And he said, these are the three things I'm going to solve. Go out and buy design companies. Go out and buy engineering companies that can implement designs. And go out and buy a tech platform for implementing uh, UI. And then the head of, of M&A said, like, the only one we know of is Adobe. And we can't buy Adobe. And in my case, he was like, go buy Adobe. Okay, I don't care. Just go buy Adobe. And the head of MA was like sitting there and like, we can't buy Adobe. So he was going Googling around and he happened to land on our webpage. And then he started asking around. He's like, so you have 25 designers that implement designs for people and you, you designed the whole Android platform, ground up, graphic design, interaction design. Yes. So you have an engineering team of 50 to 60 people who help them implement these designs for very special customers. Yes. And then you have a product team of 60 people who build a product that the world's best in class uh, platform. And they were like, yes. And it's like, this is crazy. This is like, you know, three birds with one stone. That's never happening. So they were just saying like, this is going to save us a huge amount of money because we don't have to go out and buy, try to buy Adobe or something crazy and then buying a design firm. So for us, we were the cheapest things they could ever find. So the thing is when I asked them like, would you have paid more? They were just laughing. Yeah. We, I mean, we were looking at Adobe. What do you think Adobe would have cost? You then went on to run M&A for the EMEA, so the European region 
for BlackBerry. What did you learn from the experience selling your own company that you then applied to the companies that you were looking to buy? So I think the biggest thing I I learned there was really alignment between, I mean, making sure that there's alignment um, on the founder level. Uh, Because I think, so like making sure that people with vision have alignment. A lot of people look at deals and they want to talk to all the shareholders. And and, and that, of course, you need to talk to the shareholders. Uh, But the thing is, if the founders want to sell, then most of the times the shareholders need to sell. If you're looking... if you own a company, if you're an investor in a company, and the two founders come into your office and say, like, okay, we've got this offer, we want to sell, it, you're, if you turn around and say, like, I don't think you should sell, the thing is, you just demotivated your most valuable asset. So you, as an investor, you will have to say, okay, tell me how much do we get out of this? Like, you, like work with me. Like, I'm not going to sell for nothing. So the thing is, you, you, end, you end up having two buyers. You end up having the people who you need to please, gut feel please. Like the founders, yes, they will get money, but you know that they're going to get an enormous amount of money because they're, they're founders. You know, they're not billionaires probably. So you need to satisfy them um, economically, but that's pretty easy. But the thing you need to do is that you need to satisfy their ego. So you need like, this is the vision. This is what we're going to do with your company. We're not going to fire everybody. Then you need to satisfy that they can turn around to the media and say that this is an amazing success. You need to craft a story. And they need to turn around to the employees and saying, this is amazing for the company, right? And they need to turn around to their you know, family and spouses and their community and say, this is amazing. So that's the thing I really realized. When you buy companies, you need to talk to the founders a lot more than you think. Because a lot of, I mean, if a lot of people talk to the founders, if the founders are big shareholders. But I acquired companies sometimes when the founders had, you know, 6% each or 3% or whatever. And this is going to be like a $10 million deal. So it's not going to be a huge deal for them. But if they could turn around to media and saying, you know, I built this amazing company and now it's acquired by BlackBerry, that's a great story for them anyway. And then we had to work with earnouts and other things to like, you know, because they didn't have shares enough. What a fascinating story. I'm still reeling from, I could ask you questions after questions about this, but, you know, our time is short. Uh, Hampus, tell us what you're up to now. So I, after two years at, at BlackBerry, I ended up uh, leaving BlackBerry and started a new company. And I started a company because I was extremely frustrated, both at TAT and at BlackBerry, actually, that I felt that a lot of times sales organizations are run totally on gut feel. And I'm a true believer that everything we do in a company, we're trying to run with engineering precision. Like if you go into the marketing team, the marketing team is measuring everything they do. They do not spend money wasting money throwing out the window. They're really thinking things through. They're setting up measurements and they're throwing money where they get the money back. But then when you turn to the sales team, the sales team is this just huge pit of leaderboards and people shouting and screaming. And that's just not the way it's supposed to be. You want to have an engineering measurable and uh, measurable process where you know that you're, the people you're hiring, you're training them the best way, and you're getting them up to speed the best way, and they're using best practices. So when I left BlackBerry, I felt, I have to build this company. I will build a company where all the salespeople can get help on what to do next. The, what is the best thing you can do with every deal and every contact that you're talking to. So that is what we were building. And this is like now, I left 2012. Now it's 20, so I've built this company now for three years. We have amazing customers. We have customers like Hootsuite, Evernote, Intercom, um, some of the, and every company who uses Salesforce, who's got more than 20 salespeople, 
who wants to have a predictable, structured sales process, when they talk to us, they're just saying like, where have you been all my life? And it took three years to build though, because it was, you know, I spent a lot of money and, and blood, sweat and tears doing this. Where do people reach you? Uh, Twitter is really good, at H-A-J-A-K. Um, and then on my email address, Hampus, H-A-M-P-U-S, at brisk, B-R-I-S-K dot I-O. Uh, but I ran, reply really, really quickly on Twitter. I do not reply very well on LinkedIn. Like, I, I, I have an issue with people saying, I'd like to connect with you on LinkedIn and no context. So I'm pretty bad at those, but I'm good at the other two. Hampus, thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot. This was great. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.